Hi, I'm Jamie Brazil, and you're listening to episode 212 of the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Priscilla McKinney, president of Little Bird Marketing. But first, a word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is sponsored by Schlesinger Quantitative, your trusted provider of global online surveys that drive the best decisions for success in the marketplace. Schlesinger Quantitative has built an entire division of experts with extensive online research experience and an unparalleled understanding of quality drivers across panel, sample, and data. Hi, I'm Jamin Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Priscilla McKinney, president of Little Bird Marketing. Little Bird Marketing is a well-respected, full-service ad agency founded in November 2009. They use design and marketing to showcase clients as experts in their field by making unexpected connections. In 2014, Priscilla started a podcast, Ponderings from the Perch, where she covers a variety of topics, including marketing techniques, current events, and thought leadership in our space. Priscilla, thanks very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Oh, I am so just absolutely excited to be on. And we got connected through some very cool people. And so I only like to know cool people who know cool people. That's how I work. <laughs> that's awesome. And <laughs> so here we are. And the world is full of cool people, right? That's that's the, probably one of the neatest things that I, um, uh, discoveries, I guess, that I, I have gone through over the last 20 years is that every person has a story and the sooner that we can move away from judging and in the moving towards a place of embracing and understanding that, gosh, you know, they've got a reason why, et cetera, then it all of a sudden creates this concept of inclusion, right? And, and embracing mm -hmm. as opposed to the other direction. And I think, you know, this is one of the pieces that I, I teach uh, a course at, in the MBA uh, department here at Fresno State on entrepreneurship. And in that course, I actually tell them to look around, take note of the people that are in the class, because many of them are going to move into high level positions over the next 15 years, right? And the sooner that they can recognize and treat each other with that, that, um, that level of respect and operate like who that person's going to be in the future, then it's going to create these shortcuts in their career when that person does get advanced, et cetera. They're going to be able to pick up the phone, have the conversation and boom, you know, be right there with um, yeah. that same sort of level up opportunity. Well, and it's a little bit about also what we go looking for. I mean, if we go looking to get offended, we're going to. And if you go looking to find cool people, guess what? You're going to find that too. Totally. And this whole principle of like produces like, uh, mm -hmm. I think it's just so... So true. Gosh, the other thing, since we're on this subject, right, you are the average of the five people that you hang out with the most. You know, there's... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, there's... Um, I'm such a believer in that. Like, you need to really think about who you're spending your time with, especially mm -hmm. as you uh, get a little bit older, which, you know, I just turned 48. So I'm feeling, you know, knocking on the door of 50 here any minute now, which is terrifying. But anyway, so... No, don't say that. You mean, <laughs> you, mean you you just excelled past the door of 40 is At what you need to say. Yeah, I'm trying to tap the brakes a little, but still, <laughs> but still, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's so true that our time is the one non-renewable resource that we have in our lives. More than anything else, it's the most valuable. And the people that we hang out with are the ones that really inform, I believe, who we wind up becoming and, and evolving into. 
Well, I think it's also about who ends up sticking around, because if you are completely bent on giving and providing some kind of purpose and adding to the energy, adding to the beauty of what's going on, I think your people end up being the people who stick around. The other people are like, no, I, you know, they they may not even be conscious, uh, you know, in that sense, but they do end up moving on because it just doesn't fit anymore. You know, grumbling doesn't fit, Um, you know, uh, shifting blame doesn't work, you know, whatever it is. Oh, what was me and my business? You know, we all go through hard times and that's amazing. That's a great time to be able to be there with people. But when, you know, the people that will stick around are the people that continue to use your exact same paradigm, which, you know, I really believe strongly in leading into a relationship with giving something, give something great at the beginning. And I'm also a big believer in being very clear about what you need. Um, you came so highly recommended to me from such great people. And I just came directly out and said, you know, Jamin, will you have me on your podcast? I just asked exactly for what I need. I didn't try and hide that or make it weird or, you know, get you to guess it or anything. I just knew through the excellent people that we know that we would be an immediate connect. And I think that's trusting you know, trusting those people, trusting the, your sources. So I, I'm so glad that we're together. Yeah, me too. I, you know, I want to actually, we haven't even gotten into the interview questions. I know, but, we're already BFFs, whatevs. Yeah, but I do want to, I do want to actually get into this point that you just raised around clarity of, you know, kind of your values, because I think that's really important, right? This whole uh, misery loves company is is a hundred percent true and positivity loves company too right and right and this lens that we have on what gosh there's another adage bloom where you're planted you've probably heard mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. right um it we don't get to control a lot of life in fact probably most of it but we do have the opportunity of how we per- controlling how we perceive it and then subsequently mm-hmm. communicate it right and I, know. I think what we're controlling is how we're showing up. Exactly. That's the only thing we truly can show up and control. And um, I, I'll give a shout out to a great friend of mine, a fantastic writer, amazing coach, Anise Cavanaugh. She uh, wrote a book about contagious culture. And I love her work on intentional energetic presence about it is the energy. It is how you decide to show up in any given day. But I love this part of it, which I think really connects to what we're talking about is that you can change it at any moment. It's not, these are not big value shifts. This is just right now, do you like the way this conversation is going? If not, if it's not the impact you want to have, if it's not the energy level you want to have, just shift it. Just be able to, you know, to to do a hop, skip and jump to something new um, and just being able to know how to do that. Of course, that's based in your values where you're coming from saying, I know I can make it through this, um, you know, and and in the end have the impact I want. I'm willing to go through whatever it is, if it's hard or if it's easy. But I think it's that sense of ownership that I'm going to show up and I'm going to bring the kind of energy that I want in order to have the impact that I want. So little bird marketing, I have a couple of questions. One is uh, little is capitalized. So I was curious if it's an acronym and then, or, right? And then, uh, or all, all caps, I guess. And then started in November of 2009. Maybe you could tell us a little bit of history there. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, Little um, Bird, the way the actual Little is kind of written was a happy accident. It was a design accident. And, um, you know, I I can't remember who the quote is, but I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you for show notes. But it's about, you know, great design is learning how when to keep your mistakes. Um, so a little bit of art, <clears throat> art editing and design and things like that. But um, it just it, it looked different. And um, the idea of Little Bird marketing really comes from a desire to be on the inside, maybe in the in, in the know with a particular brand. And we first started wanting to really work with premier brands who wanted to have a more intimate conversation and intimate relationship with their ideal clients. And so usually when you have really great news and you're on the inside of things, you say, oh, a little birdie told me, blah, blah, blah. And it's always good news. It's always like, it, you know, it's never this is how people show up and complain. It's that's how people show up and, and talk. And, you know, I, I have to say for advertising, a lot of people say, oh, word of mouth is the best. But word of mouth you know what it when they open their mouth what are they going to say <laughs> and um and when they open their who's going to remind them that to open their mouth like what's going to trigger them so we wanted to create an environment where we brought clients on who really wanted to get intimately into that puzzle how do we create a culture and a relationship between our company um, with our actual clients so that they feel like they're in the know and they're and they're special and so they got great news and of course, when you get great news, you want to share it. Now, you've been, you guys are actually not based at like traditional agencies, right? Which are usually in like, you know, Chicago or San Francisco, New York, mm -hmm. et cetera, right? You guys are, mm -hmm. are, are based in a smaller geography. Yeah, for sure. We're based out of Joplin, Missouri, and kind of a the background of, of our story is in 2009 we started, but in 2011, some people might remember, we had the only F5 uh, tornado um, here in Joplin. And I it, do remember and, that, by the way. It was yeah. catastrophic. <laughs> It was uh, in one fell swoop, it kind of put us on the map and off of it again. So it was a really hard time. Um, very, very difficult. We lost over 30% of our town within 20 minutes and uh, lost friends, lost uh, a lot of friends, lost companies. It just, uh, you know, a, a very difficult time. And um, three weeks after that tornado, um, I arrived at my studio to watch it burn to the ground. So we've really been through the fire, and that's not a metaphor. Um, and so we've really had to think long and hard about what, uh, you know, about who we are and how we're going to come into the market, who we're going to serve, and with what energy, with what purpose, with what drive, um, you know, with, with what, um, you know, parts of, of, of who we are. What can we bring to bear to really help people and help their companies? So we've had to think about it from, I think, a very deep place. And I'm actually very appreciative, you know, for that time. And that's when the, we, we had changed our name. We changed our name out after that aftermath and went with Little Bird Marketing. And since then, instead of being full service, um, we really have morphed into a very specialized agency. And we specialize in our um, our proprietary system called SOAR, S-O-A-R, which is sustainable, organized, accountable, and repeatable, which is an inbound marketing strategy that actually focuses on actual predictable lead generation for companies. So I don't care how you market or what you want to do, but in the end, does it actually generate leads? All right. So let's break out SOAR, break down SOAR for just a moment. So okay. thinking specifically about strategic that intuitively to me is kind of what are the objectives of uh, the company? 
Yeah. You know what's interesting is a lot of people come at marketing, but they don't lead with their actual goals. You know, they start leading with what are other people doing, looking, you know, looking at other people's hands, looking at other people's advertising, look at, you know, and feeling the pressure in the market. Oh, everybody's doing that. And, you know, one, once upon a time, I was like, we have to get a Facebook account, you know. And, you know, at one point, someone's like, we have to get a phone. You know, we have to get a fax machine. We have to get a website. We have, it, it's never changed. There's always the new thing that, you know, people want to do. If you think about it, you know, the telegraph was social media. So, you know, it's just about that next thing. But I don't care what people use in marketing. What matters is, did they start with their specific goals in mind? What is success to them? And then build a marketing strategy around that. And so for us, the in our SOAR proprietary program, the first foundational, you know, block is strategy. What is the strategy that we are going to need to employ to win and basically setting ourselves up so that we can measure it. Because if you don't know what the strategy is, then you won't be able to know what to do to measure at the very end to determine if you're successful or not. So that, that's the basis. Do you have frameworks that you've seen be successful? I'm thinking about you know the, uh, the, the audience that's tuning into this right now. Sometimes you know if you're starting out and you're a small marketing research company, you might not have the resources mm-hmm. to solicit a uh, firm, outside firm, in any meaningful way anyway. So do you have like a, hey, you know what, you should spend, if you had $100,000 this year to spend on marketing, would you see the distribution? Would you have a recommended way of that spend going? Like in other words, 80000 on paid ads on LinkedIn versus 20000 in events or what? Yeah, that's interesting. But that kind of kind of comes back to my point is, I don't know, it depends upon what that MR firm is looking to do. Are they looking to, you know, become a thought leader? Are they looking to get their their uh, execs on a stage? Are they looking to sell sample online? Are they I mean, it just could be so many different things. So we employ a very, very different strategy. What I think is common for all of them is two things. Number one, you have to have a system. I see tons of people not calendarizing, not not creating an actual plan for the whole year. And I know that sounds like a tremendous pain in the butt. Um, However, sitting down and really lining out what happens first, what happens next, et cetera. Um, And then the other thing that anybody can do with just a little time on their hands is to get the vast amount of information out there that's free about creating an ideal persona, truly honing in on who your audience is. Um, And then only taking action and writing content or creating an ad or marketing message or putting something on the website. I don't care what it is. Every marketing effort should be in servitude to the ideal client persona. What are their problems? What are their fears? What are their challenges? What are their questions? (laughs) What are their aches and pains? And if what you're writing or doing is not actually, um, you know, keeping them in mind and and seeking to serve them, I truly believe that then those marketing efforts eventually will fall flat on you know, and and it, and you won't be you won't be looking at any like KPIs to measure. So I don't know if you want to be at events. I don't know if you want to put most of your budget on um, on ads. I will say the first year, you have to develop a system. 
and I don't care if it's our source system or something else, but you need to be able to know what comes first, what comes next. And I will say one last thing is that if someone had $100,000, it kind of doesn't matter. We have clients that spend less than $100,000. We have clients that spend $100,000. That's kind of our sweet spot there. And we have clients that spend way more than that. But they all had to pay the piper on the first year of setting up a foundational system. And then I don't care, you know, based on, you know, their their scale, how much they can spend on the different things. Everybody is totally different. I've done something where someone spent $300 a month on Google AdWords, and we've had a client that spent $30,000 in the month on Google AdWords. So that scale, but you still have to actually have the framework of the house. And that costs the same thing, no matter how, how big you are. And the nice part about that, and just kind of bookending your acronym on the R, thinking about the repeatability, that's where you start me- measuring your improvement to both, both velocity and outcome, right? By tweaks, changes, et cetera. Absolutely. And I like to remind people that more than anything, what you're trying to get out of that repeatability factor is what can I start saying no to? No can be such a powerful thing for your budget. You finally know what to quit doing. And for your brand. I mean, the the so much brand confusion is caused because the customer or sorry, the, the uh, company just says yes because mm-hmm. they're thinking about short-term wins, but they're losing track of the actual impact that's going to have on whether it's long-term R&D or, you know, confusion in the market in terms of what you're going to, or, um, you know, this is one I see actually pretty frequently is channel conflict can be in, uh, in, injected in that environment as well. Absolutely. And when you're trying to measure too many things at once, you really don't get a good sense of what's going on. I kind of liken it a bit to people talk about A-B testing, and I hate using jargon necessarily, but it's that simple, you know, A or B, A or B. Like, we're only changing one small thing every time so that we can actually truly understand what what thing is merging as a winner. And I like to think about it like an optometrist. You go there and he says, one, better, two, one, better, two. And you're, I mean, you remember the pressure that you feel you know, like, I don't know, go back to one. Is that better? You know, right. and you almost feel like it's going to be a wrong answer or something. So I like to think about that, how we reflect as humans. But, you know, the op- optometrist, he doesn't say what's better, one, two, three, four, five or six. And my gosh, there's no way your brain could figure that out. But yet we come into marketing, we try and test too many things at one time. And so for me, the it's not about how much money and it's not about how many different things you could do is are you actually able to test the things that you're doing? Um, And so I would rather set up a system that's smaller and is actually functioning to truly understand um, some experimentation because marketing is on some level some experimentation. But the problem is, is a lot of people don't look at their results. They just keep experimenting and keep experimenting and keep and then they experiment with the next thing without actually really, you know, evaluating what happened. So A, B, a was better. Okay, now let's take A and now let's shift it to some. Okay, one or two. Okay, well, two is better. Okay, well, now let's take two and let's move it back to A, B. And, it, you know, so you can constantly improve on yourself, not then go mimic what another competitor is doing. I've never heard the optometrist example before, but I think that is like a hundred percent spot on. You know, you're, you're capturing such like even the emotional stress. I don't know why it's stressful, but 
<laughs> but I'm like, I don't know. Oh my God. But I, I know. I want the right answer here. <laughs> right? It's so funny. That's just such human nature. Well, if you like that analogy, let me give you another al- analogy that's really fresh on my brain because we just published this uh, this blog um, back in November. And it, it, it really, when our team put it out, I was like, oh my gosh, I want everybody to read this, uh, this blog. And it's about, I, I refer to our SOAR program as um, many times as uh, the one ring to rule them all, the fellowship of the rings analogy, this idea of like, you know, everybody has a little bit of marketing here, a little bit of this, they're testing this, someone else has this, and they're all over, but you need to have one strategy to rule them all. Where, how do you, how can you actually use the power of content to reach your goals by putting them all onto that main strategy? And one of my, one of my uh, in-house writers cracked me up because he was saying that there was a great analogy to take mine even further. And he says, well, to actually create that one ring, Priscilla, to rule them all, you know, Sarin had to actually forge it in the hottest fire. And, um, but what most people are doing is they don't go far enough with some of that testing. Um, and, and, um, instead they're using an easy bake oven they borrowed from their sister. Right. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, you can't, you know, bear out an actual full strat- strategy unless you really try and prove some things and put it through the fire. And so I really like that analogy as well. And I think that that kind of goes hand in hand with my optometrist, you know, A-B testing types of things. People just like to get into the newfangled thing without really thinking about how they're connected. Yeah, I mean, we're going to, this is totally off script, but, and I've talked about this a few different times on the podcast. One of my previous board, Wesley Chan, who did the YouTube acquisition of Google uh, back in whatever year it was, 2006, I guess. In, in in that transaction, there was a, a over 13, I believe, different product lines that YouTube had. Instead of focusing on all the 13 and growing them, which is pretty normal, uh, especially in context of an M&A, right. they decided to focus on a single KPI. And after doing a bunch of research and looking at the, uh, the product and the use cases, they placed all their bets on one thing, which was number of videos uploaded per day. And mm. from that, it it drove all of the R&D, which of course you see how the tail wags the dog in the example, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and mm-hmm. and I, I see this, even in my personal life, I struggle with it, but you know, you, for those people that maybe don't have that, um, that point of reference or that history, you know, it's even maybe more difficult, but we, a lot of times I think we feel like, oh, I've got to drive all these things, especially if I'm a leader in a business or business unit. But really what you've got to do is to put the, the, you know, put it under fire, put the effort in in order to figure out what that one thing is and then place your bet on that number, right? And then mm-hmm. go all in. And, that, yeah. and that's and- where you see the big returns. Yeah. And even one insight, I think in market research, we can understand this as well, because, you know, if people get a very, very deep and very, um, uh, a very well enunciated insight from a massive market research, it in itself probably has the ability to truly fill your innovation pipeline for many years if you just focus on that one truth that was uncovered. But many times they want to focus on eight or nine truths. And I'm not saying that's like you said, you know, maybe that's the standard in M&A to, you know, work with 13. And certainly if you have the scale for it. But, you know, I think there's some beauty when you simplify some of the testing and when you simplify um, what what you want to innovate off of. How are you going to riff off of a true something true that you found out? 
All right, so I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I don't know in truth, you know, uh, how accurate this is. I'm just basing this off of the consumption of your podcast and um, online content blogs that you've posted. But it feels like your your book of business has a high concentration in the market research space. Is that accurate? That's absolutely true. <laughs> so maybe you could talk to us about why you decided to, you know, have that as the customer base or the focus of the business. Well, that's funny because I'd love to, you know, revise history and say that it was a grandmaster plan and I'm so smart, um, but that's not true. <laughs> I do have a grandmaster plan and I am so smart, but that's not how that happened. Things sometimes just happen to you. Um, I worked very hard on on, on blogging, on podcasting, on, on practicing what I preach with content. And then I put out to the world that I wanted to be a speaker. I wanted to be on stage, that I was really leading thought in particular areas. And I believed it was of tremendous value. I put it out there and I got a call, you know, back, I don't know, a couple of weeks later uh, from Green Book. And they asked me to speak at an event in New York. And as it turns out, it was an add-on to IIEX. And so market researchers are there, but for an extra day, they'll tack on uh, something they call Insights Marketing Day. And what the truth of the matter is, is that there are a lot of market research firms who are, you know, talk about market research all the time, but do none for themselves and also spend no time marketing their company. And I find it just uh, almost ironic, you know, um, but these are companies that, um, you know, are completely paid based on an industry that is checking in with the consumer and driven by consumer opinion. And yet they don't know their own consumer's opinion. They don't even know their ideal client. And they haven't done the persona work. And I think it's a, it was a very interesting conundrum that I was dropped into. And I will say this, I, you know, I had a lot of fun. I met very key people. And uh, Kristen Luck was one of them, um, you know, the, the founder of, of Women in Research, Wire, and invited me into Wire Exec. And I've met amazing people, which actually one of them I can track directly to you. So this, this is really interesting. This happened kind of earlier in my career. And I do have a background. I actually have a degree in cultural anthropology. So it's not like I don't understand where social scientists are coming from. And I certainly understand looking at data, and I certainly have created my own marketing system based more on more on research and you know principles and, and data. On top of it, we add the crazy creative and the desire for experimentation, and just I mean, so then just some nutty stuff on top for fun. Um, but that that's how I actually got there, and then from it, I just did what I said. You know, I mentioned to you that I truly believe in is start first by giving, start by giving something great, do favors for people. My podcast is a really great um, way that I could walk into a very dynamic conversation with a very dynamic person and give them something. Let me give you, you know, space to breathe. Let me give you a new audience. Let me give you a chance to talk about your book, whatever it is. And from that, I met amazing people. And it is all about the people. I. It is funny too. I, I think the blind spot in marketing research is marketing. Uh, right. I, know, I mean, it's, right? it's funny. And what's even funnier is that, and I don't mean this in like a ha ha kind of way, but mm -hmm. you know, a lot of it's just predicated on the fact that we understand as an industry, the importance of relationship. And if you look at how many of the uh, market research companies have started, you know, the traditional career, and I'm kind of, I'm going back a ways, uh, 30 ish years, 
is, you know, you're working in a brand like Levi Strauss, you make connections, you do that for 10 years, become an expert or well-viewed and connected inside of that brand and you leave and service the brand, right? So mm -hmm. that has been largely the view, I think, you know, again, categorically, it's, it's mm -hmm. you, you step up when you're in like an Ipsos or what Kantar or what have you, but um, mm -hmm. that, and, and then that just, that attitude is what's raised or reared the next generation of, of researchers. So it's actually an important work that you're doing. Well, it's also industry. What, interesting what's happening in the market research industry right now. And I liken it a little bit to my experience. Once upon a time, if you reach back into Mad Men days, you know, people were company men and they worked at a particular agency and 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 it was a big mystery what was going on at those agencies. <laughs> there was no transparency and people were paying big bucks, you know, to, you know, have access to this big firm. And, you know, you think about, you know, Wyden and Kennedy or, you know, Ogilvy or, you know, Shia Day or, you know, all these kinds of things. And maybe to your audience, maybe those aren't names, you know, they know. They know Kantar and Toluna and Ipsos and Schlesinger and all you know, all this kind of stuff. But I'm just saying that there are trends that happen in any industry. And in my industry, it was the big agency like that was who was important. And then, you know, disruption um, really brought it to small boutique firms and looking for very, um, very um, keen and well-honed skills. And that's in that process over the last nine years is where we actually rebranded and said, you know, we don't want to be full service. We don't want to be everything to everybody. We want to do our sweet spot. And from that, we developed our proprietary system and really have gone to market with that. And so because of that, you know, our expertise is in that B2B world, which then also lends itself to, um, you know, to market research. But I see that same thing happening right now in the industry. And I think that a lot of people in market research probably, you know, um, agree with me. You know, we have, you know, companies buying each other out. We have, you know, a company laying off a, a thousand people only to hire 500 back later, just restructuring and buying out of large people. I mean, you look at SSI and they say, you know, the research now and, you know, acquisitions that are going on. On the top of it, we also have an incredibly tight labor market. And then on top of that, we have a lot of end clients, you know, actually broadening and and um, and enlarging their uh, internal um, market research, right? Their own insights department. So they're not relying as much on some of the big companies. I'm not saying they're not using them. I'm just saying this is an interesting trend to really insource instead of outsource. So uh, this is very interesting things that are happening in the industry. And so what happens to these people who have worked at the large agencies, but now, you know, either have gone freelance or independent moderators, or maybe they write Python code for, you know, some there, there's people now who are able to kind of live on a freelance, you know, type of a kind of a gig economy, maybe you might say, but on the other hand, you know, it's this dynamic between the big monsters and then, you know, the big clients are, is it being insourced or outsourced? And then you have all of these other people that are, you know, have a lot of small MR firms. And I mean, think about how many small MR firms, maybe one person, two people, 10 people, you know, even 50, you know, that's still small compared to some of these monsters. So I think there's something interesting to note and understand about what's going on in the market research industry and why we're feeling certain dilemmas. The, you know, as a historian in some ways of this space, you know, this is starting in, in 2000, sorry, in 1996, what, I've seen this trend happen three times where companies will become very profitable, you know, PE ratios go up. I'm talking about 
prof, uh, publicly traded type, you know, large firms. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then they wind up spending a lot in the market research space and they'll even, they'll even bolster internal staff. And then what happens is a retraction, like what happened in 2001 with the dot-com bust or, um, you know, 2007 when, in the great recession. And then all of a sudden there's this massive contraction, usually short-term freezes on budgets, but then they still are desperate for data. So that's when they boost their supplier networks, right? And mm -hmm. I feel like what you're saying is really important because, you know, our economy has been in an interesting spot. We haven't had a major correction like that. It feels, I've heard different economists have different points of view, of course. To me, it feels very reminiscent of one of those two times. And not to say that we're entering into the dark ages or something, but you know, I, <laughs> I certainly could see a scenario where there is a retraction. The one thing that is different though in today's world versus those other two points in time is that technology has democratized research so that anybody can do it. Now, maybe mm -hmm. not do it well, and maybe you shouldn't do it, but yet mm -hmm. the capacity still exists. Right. right, right. And the trick is now people finding the right people. And I just as a point, I'm, it just because I, I find this totally interesting, but I'm good friends with Bob and Bryn who run Trusted Talent MR and their specific recruiting firm just for the market research, uh, you know, industry. And, you know, now I've been around the market research industry long enough to know what some of these problems are that people are facing and how now, you know, even some of the, the, the it, people who want to insource, they're not even sure what kind of person they need in order to do tomorrow's work. Right. <laughs> You know, and I and so I get that in the market research world, but I understand what's on the other side of that in marketing. It is so hard to keep up. Of course, my clients and, and MR firms, they can't keep up with what's going on in marketing. We barely can keep up. We're on podcasts. We're on certifications. We're, you know, understanding what's what's new in chatbots and how social media is is, is changing. And, and so we are constantly inundated with all of these same kinds of industry changes. So there's no way that our market research clients can keep up with that. So instead, what they want to do is, well, I'll hire a social person, I'll hire a web person, I'll hire, and they go down the list, a writer, a, they, they need like six people. So sometimes, you know, when they look at that, when they really understand what's going on, they need that kind of expertise. You can either hire six people and insource it, or you can outsource it. And so I understand that dilemma from both the market research side or from marketing. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, if you're Depending on the size of company that you're talking about, you really start getting into dictating uh, capacity of the organization yeah. to get stuff done. And that's where mm -hmm. I'm seeing there's, you know, sometimes they'll overbuy from a marketing perspective and mm -hmm. we can deliver, but they don't have the capacity even to review. So it's just kind oh of Oh my gosh, this. that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah, Jamin, this is exactly it. Because for example, if I go if a client comes to us and they're like, Yeah, well, we need, you know, we need a social media director, we need a web and we, we need a writer. Okay. So let's say just those three. Let's say let's make it really abbreviated. Okay. Well, now you can find let let's say you can find them because you finally figure out what to do, which is a tough order. But let's say you find them. But if you don't know the expertise of a social media, you know, person, how are you going to inspect what they do? How do you know what to demand from them? You know? Exactly. So if you can't do it yourself, then it is very hard to hire for it. And then it is also very hard to inspect it. And so you're reliant on then three completely disconnected people, you know, and I'm not saying they couldn't connect, but very often 
they don't connect. They don't create one strategy to rule it all. Yeah. <laughs> they create their own little micro strategies. And then you are constantly trying to put it all back together. And that's where we come into marketing saying, look, we're not working against each other. We're a big team that actually, you know, you need a video person. Yeah. You need a chat bot person. You need a social media person. You need a writer. You need someone who is certified on HubSpot. You need someone who knows how to write code. You need someone who knows how to actually write. <laughs> you need someone who understands client personas, who can do strategy. You need all these things. So you can either, you know, try and get that, you know, from one person for, you know, 80 grand, <laughs> good luck. Um, or you can, you know, or you can uh, instead invest in an actual system and get a wide range of, you know, of expertise and, and get someone to help you along. And it's so funny because that's what MR people do for brands. Right. We just don't, we just don't, you know, <laughs> but market research doesn't. And this is where, this is one of the, the macro trends that I've picked up over the last uh, 49, well, 47 published, probably 54 um, total interviews that I've done just on the happy market research side, mm -hmm. right, is storytelling is critical. And in, right. in order to tell the story in, in, the, in a modern marketplace, right, so today's marketplace, not 10 years ago, but today's marketplace, you've got to understand the context of the insights, both from a where the business is and what the implication is or, or how it's generating an R, positive ROI for the business. And, oh my gosh. Right? And, yeah. so, yes. and, and so this is, you know, when you think about marketing, that's exactly what marketing does. But now again, we're not, marketing research is not the, you know, cutting edge of technology. It's not the place where you go to see what's trending. Um, and, and, and nor should we be, right? We are, by definition, uh, scientists. So, right. It, right? And so, if in that in that ecosystem, we're still operating about five years past, mm -hmm. right? Which is, well, gosh, I'm going to own the data. I'm going to tell. I'm going to run this analysis and give you the results. But it's your job, Mister Executive, to apply mm -hmm. the, you know, what is the application of the insight, right? right. And so that's where I see this a, a material opportunity for marketing research companies to differentiate themselves by telling their own story and leveraging mm -hmm. social media to do that. Right. Well, I'll take I'll take that even deeper. I was really fortunate enough to be, meet uh, Christina. She's the uh, brand insights uh, director of Twitter. Uh, I met her, I think, two years ago at, at TMRE. She was on a panel um, with Kristen Luck and we were talking. It, it, she said something very profound to me. And, and, and I I was like, yes, this is what you need to tell everybody else. As a market researcher, you can't go in and take the data and then solve, you know, your client's problem. You can't say, oh, this is the problem you brought to me. Here's, you know, the person who actually contacted you and, you know, developed the research and got it done. No, you have to solve their boss's, possibly their boss's boss's problem. <laughs> and so it can't be any more of like, oh, you need that. Here's the deliverable. You know, it has to be so much deeper than that is like, this is the problem that was presented to me. And this is what we found. And this is what we know about how you guys are going to use it. And this is how your boss would use it. And this is how your boss's boss would use it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that accurate. is a model. Right. That is a model that understands the ideal, you know, uh, ideal buyer and actually really understands a buyer journey and understands how to meaningfully provide true value to their client. You should listen to the, uh, last week I dropped the interview with Cantar's uh, Chief Digital Officer, Stephen DeMarco, and an EVP, Anne Green. 
in that interview, they actually start talking about this specific subject, uh, you know, really getting to the why of the data as opposed yeah. to it being more of data for information's sake. Right. Well, everybody is saying that, you know, th- that we do have a lot of data, and but do we know what the data says? Um, and, you know, as with anything in the industry, there's going to be trends of we need more data or no, you you already have the data. You just don't know it. <laughs> right. or, you, you know, so the insights are there. Can we uncover them? And I mean, I think this is age old in, in that sense, but I think it is absolutely meaningful how we continue to discuss it. Are you seeing Twitter, LinkedIn as a pivotal part of the strategy of some of your customers? Uh, not some. Just say yes, all. <laughs> uh, Twitter is just, yeah, we, you know, whether someone came to us and they already had a Facebook, you know, is, is you know, six one way, half dozen the other. Um, now, it's incredibly important if they're actually recruiting in any way. So, you know, we have to really divide and say, where is someone recruiting? And then where is someone actually going to market as a B2B, as a market research firm? So there there is a good differentiation there. But as far as professionals concerned, there is Twitter, there is LinkedIn. And we even have special programs that go even deeper. We have done for you uh, programs called Amplify, which um, is a done for you service where we take over, uh, you know, an exec's uh, LinkedIn for nine weeks and really, you know, drive the strategy that's been developed in, you know, in the actual, in our source system. So different lead magnets, different really valuable downloads that we've written specifically to answer your problem, your boss's problem, your boss's boss's problem. Right. So, you know, we help clients actually develop those lead magnets so that they can get predictable and sustainable lead generation. But some of it is how do we get it out there authentically? How do we really make the best use and leverage uh, LinkedIn and Twitter? But um, it's funny. I'm so glad you said that. Hashtag new MR and hashtag MRX. Those are the two we use all the time. There, um, obviously, you're going to add a couple of others, and we do get into a lot of hashtag strategy. But for sure, uh, we've actually explained that to a couple of MR firms, and they were not aware of it. And they have not been really, you know, um, understanding the power of the hashtag and how to really um, you know, rise above the noise on, on social. And I find that MR firms in general, and I don't want to, you know, just, you know, just completely bash anybody, but they're not very good at social. And the few of them that are fantastic at Twitter really, I think, very easily soar um, and take that lead. And so I think that's a very, you know, maybe that's a quick takeaway for one of your listeners. I mean, like, you know what, I've, I've really been hesitating doing that. But that really is where solid conversations are happening in a very um, quick environment but also I believe a very highly professional environment. And so I think it's it's very noteworthy and I don't think it's going away in market research. Now, I was just speaking in IIEX Bangkok uh, for their Asia Pacific um, one. And of course, you know, the, as soon as you move into another culture like that, of course, you know, they're online or they're on and like, you know, the social platform, uh, you know, they're on WeChat, they're on something different. They're not always on the same thing, but Twitter and LinkedIn gets you pretty close to the global you know, the, the global catch-all. Yeah, for sure. Are you seeing um, Facebook? Well, I should actually rephrase the question. How are you seeing Instagram and Facebook play into your customer strategy? Well, I think Instagram for us, and again, I'll come back to say everybody's strategy is going to be a bit different, but Instagram may deliver a lot of hits in terms of people understanding cultures, maybe what is it going to be like to work with them. Uh, Specifically, you know, when we talk about design and how you actually, what the deliverables are in market research, the people who can really show that visually in Instagram, I believe, win. 
um, making something very interesting, um, you know, displaying the solution to, uh, you know, an insight, deriving meaning from that insight in an interesting, very quick infographic. That's going to win on Instagram. Now, visual and video and everything else obviously is going to win on other profiles. But with Facebook, it really has to do with really where is this company and where do they come from? What's their story and what are they trying to reach? But Facebook, in my personal opinion, um, unless there's a really great other reason. Um, in general, we don't put a lot of um, effort into that. Now, uh, there's always an exception. I have a translation company that serves, you know, the market research firm, um, G3 Translate, and they are have done a very good job because they have transcribers all over the world. And so Facebook drives, you know, for them, and that's great. So it's all about coming back and saying, I don't want to, you know, choose my channel. I want to choose my strategy and then figure out what channel will help me. And I liken it this way. You like my analogy about the optometrist. So I'll give you another one. <coughs> I like to do this with a um, room full of market researchers. And I'm like, you guys love data. Here we go. Raise your hand if you like Uber. Raise your hand if you like Lyft. And I do a quick poll. And then I am say at the end, you know, raise your hand if the last time you got in Uber or Lyft, you said to the driver, hey, just take me anywhere you want to go. And of course, no takers. But that's what we do with social media. We say, oh, yeah, I'm going to get on Facebook. And guess what? Facebook's going to drive you where Facebook wants you to go. <laughs> and if you don't know your strategy, if you don't know that address, you know, it's a waste of time. And, you know, you just the, the analogy extends, you just, you know, get lost. Um, so it's really about coming back and saying it's not about choosing the channel. It's about choosing your strategy and then finding what will support your strategy. Oh, I love that. And then I, it's so funny. I just did an article, published an article on uh, Sunday, yesterday, on the difference between LinkedIn posts versus articles and how to yeah. understand the statistics that it provides. Mm -hmm. And as I went through that period of discovery, there's, I actually have two screenshots, one of the in article and then one of the normal, you know, in post feed, what that view looks like. And I mm -hmm. highlight where the ads are, right? Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is there's no ads, native ads inside of the uh, article framework. Of the articles. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. And so that was a big <laughs> aha moment for me in terms of, yeah. holy moly, a big opportunity if I can provide if I can get people into this part of my funnel, but it's right. harder, right? My number of views are inherently less by mm -hmm. a meaningful magnitude. Mm -hmm. uh, On the other hand, there's other things to consider as well, because LinkedIn is a highly trafficked you know, platform and it is providing a link if you use the hyperlink back to your site. So in terms of building authority on search engines, you know, there's a freebie right there. Yeah, exactly. That's a great hack. Gosh, we should do a mm -hmm. whole set. You know what we should do? We should do, I'm serious. We should do at least a twice a year marketing hacks uh, podcast where we do things like just what's working. You know, I'll tell you one right now that I'm seeing on Twitter. If you see somebody on MR Web, uh, uh, mm -hmm. right, get, they, they, they do their daily, per and then inside of that, they'll have people that have uh, been promoted. So on Twitter mm -hmm. and LinkedIn, if you just give them a shout out, Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you create a point of connection that costs you nothing, <laughs> right? Costs you nothing. And then, and I mean, if you want to, if I was starting from zero today on my Twitter, I would just have the discipline of 30 minutes a day doing exactly that. Oh, yeah. You would blow yeah. your Twitter up. 
Yeah. Well, here's another one. Let, 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 we'll, we'll give one for Facebook and one for LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, a lot of people are like, oh, I can't reach these people. I don't want to pay for the premium. Or, you know, they're trying to find people who they're not connected with. They're trying to get introductions and everything. But if they go into an industry and they join a lot of groups, the groups bring everybody directly into level two to you. You have access to connect with people who are involved in the other groups. So you immediately can expand your network very quickly. Um, that's a great That's a huge there. one, by the way. Um, But then also like on Facebook, if you are using Facebook and you're running those ads, you know, a lot has changed. And I'm sure by the time this publishes, this will be out of date. But, um, you know, again, I always point back to the channels. They love themselves. Facebook loves Facebook. You know, don't post a Facebook post over on and repost it over to Twitter. You know, that doesn't work. Don't take YouTube and pull, you know, embed things. But the point is, is that if you're running ads on Facebook, you run them and you put the money in and they do really well right at the beginning. And everybody's like, oh, great, great. Okay, I hope we could replicate that. And then they get worse and they get worse and then worse. And so you have to actually, I know this is a horrible pain in the butt, but I'm telling you it works. Um, And you have to completely delete that ad and start a new one over, put the new money, put the new stuff, and it will perform again at the beginning. Because that's what Facebook is doing. P.S. Facebook is a moneymaker. And how they make money is they actually, you know, get ad sales. So, you know, these things go out um, and they they want to really, you know, use that budget up at the beginning. But we see the effects of it. um, Oh, this is uh, such an important hack that you just two great hacks. The Facebook one. So (laughs) but I want to piggyback on this on the point that you said, which is pain in the butt. Right. And the reason. (laughs) But this is the point is that. You're right. It is very hard to create a content calendar like you started with to delete and recreate and delete and recreate successful campaigns to maximize your Mm -hmm. ROI. The reason Mm -hmm. that most people don't do it is it's hard, but it gives such a big opportunity, such a big gap. This is why I don't mind giving away everything right? Mm -hmm. In terms of knowledge, because it's about the execution of it systematically over time that generates success, not about just having the knowledge or the idea. Well, absolutely. Everybody says to me, oh, Priscilla, we run our own Facebook ads. I'm like, yeah, okay, good. (laughs) They're not not hard. I I didn't say it was harder. Like, oh, we started our own Facebook. Yeah, it's free, you know? I do. I do. (laughs) You know, so good for you. (laughs) But, you know, it's the, that's just one small, just small sliver of the kinds of things that we know that, you know, and that we've learned the hard way. And so the question is, do you want to learn every single thing the hard way? And here, here's another one about content and blog. And I this this drives me nuts. It's not just about the MR industry, but I see it a lot in the MR industry, specifically because you have a lot of thought leaders. And so they write very good articles, like very intense and sometimes long. And it's a one off. <laughs> right. Or they create this whole presentation, you know, to go speak at whatever. And it's like a, you know, a book. They get up and they speak. They don't turn the recorder on. Well, every time I speak, I turn the recorder on because you know what? I'm going to go get that transcribed. There's a blog. Right. Because we all say it differently. We, we, we process information and we bring amazing insights sometimes spontaneously because we know what we're talking about. But when we sit down to write, a different brain happens. And so it doesn't always come out that same way. And people always say, well, I don't have the time to write a blog. I'm like, well, you had time to speak. Right. So why not turn the, the recorder on? And then once they do create that blog, so we kind of have to demystify the all, oh, you know, I wrote a blog. Look, can we make it a little easier here to write a blog um, and get more long format content? Well, from the long format content, that's all they get. They post it one time and yeah, it didn't get much traction. Oh my gosh, I would not write a blog without putting it on LinkedIn 
12 times this year without making it an article on LinkedIn, to your point, without, you know, tweeting it uh, once a week for the next year without, you know, of course, I'm going to make I'm going to change the my content a little bit. I'm going to write to my personas. I'm going to do a different graphic. And of course, like what you're saying to your point is that it's not hard. It's just a pain in the butt. But our entire system is calendarized to where I don't when I say you know, write a blog, what I really mean is write a blog and do these 53 checklist items that are on the end. Yeah. Over a long, a long tail. That's, see, this is, this is the point that I think people just, if they could execute against it. And this is where I think uh, companies like Little Bird Marketing are so powerful and offer such a material ROI opportunity to your customers. If you take, if you invest the time and market researchers are great at this, at, at creating pillar content, if you can then convert that written word into audio and or video, mm-hmm. even if you can't, it's fine. But let's just pretend you can to one of those other two formats. Now you've got a podcast, right? Or now oh you've got God. a systematic <laughs> webinar. And then the best part about it is dissect it, pick, mm-hmm. right? And now you've got all this micro content that feeds up mm-hmm. and drives on your two main social platforms, LinkedIn and Twitter over time. So, you know, that, that, uh, that, uh, um, that attraction right? The value that you add. You know, the problem is I think a lot of people, they try something once, like they'll post an article on LinkedIn that's very thoughtful in depth and could even be revolutionary, but because Mm -hmm. they don't get the 10,000 views and become the next whatever, they're Mm -hmm. disheartened and like, oh, screw this. I'm not going to invest in it anymore. Right. (laughs) I always tell everybody, you know, if I just keep at this nine more years, I'm going to become an overnight success. Right. That's right. Time is the one. Hey, I got to tell you this one story because you're going to appreciate this. So one of (laughs) one of my clients, um, we're having this conversation. I'm like, listen, man, we just got to start. And so we created the calendar. His um, and he he does he does his for, you know, we wrote a we being him and then, you know, some work, obviously, with the team created a um, a LinkedIn post. I mean, we're not talking about anything complex, maybe 400 words here. Uh, with mm-hmm. one picture that's not even a great picture. This is his first one that he does after, I think it was eight months, 70,000 views, right? What? I know, it's better than anything I've done in 2018. <laughs> oh my God, so yeah, a dream. Now I'm like, I'm, I'm so upset like about this positive outcome <laughs> because he's like, oh, well, this shit's easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I wish that were the I wish that were, you know, more common, but Never you know, happens. I, no. Um I always tell people and I truly firmly believe there's no one action that's going to save your company. It's going to be a million small little pieces of things and whether or not they get done. People come to my office all the time. They have great ideas. They ha- And honestly, some of the best ideas, even for lead magnets or for events or for whatever it is, a great trade show, a lot of it comes out of my customer's mouth. The problem is it falls out. We're there to catch it. And then we are actually able to execute on it. And, and I think we all agree that in, in principle, oh, it's about executing on the idea. But few are the companies. I mean, you've all sat down at strategic meetings. This is going to be the year we blog. This is going to be the year we get speaking gigs. This is going to be the, you know, but there's no step by step how to get there. And that's where we take that, you know, the mystery out of it. And then sometimes it is just simple. I like what you said, just, okay, we just have to start. And after, you know, we went through the tornado and after the fire, the first gift that I got from one of my best friends, um, when I opened up my new office, I was sitting on my desk, I opened up the box, I pulled it out. 
about. And it was just, a you know, a really beautiful piece of art. But it said on it, it's kind of making me tear up thinking about it, but it said, today, begin. And I was like, you know what? It took that just overwhelming. I've got to start completely over. And it's just like, no, I can. I could just begin today. And that's that's what is important about marketing. The problem is, is that so many people keep talking about ideas and talking about ideas. And in the end, it's talking about ideas. My guest today has been Priscilla McKinney, president of Little Bird Marketing. Thank you very much, Priscilla, for joining me today. You're so welcome. I loved every minute. Schlesinger Quantitative is proud to have sponsored this podcast. Schlesinger delivers comprehensive online survey solutions, including survey programming, world-class project management, intelligent recruitment, survey hosting, and data delivery services. An uncompromising commitment to your success sets them apart.